This episode of the Full English Breakfast is produced in association with Chess King. If you enjoy the Full English Breakfast, we've got a new partnership with Chess King, complete training software for only $49. This comes with the world's strongest chess engine, Houdini 2, Giga King database, hundreds of instructive puzzles, and a pretty slick user interface. So go to chess king.com, and if you check out, don't forget to use the coupon code BREAKFAST, B R E A K F A S T. And you'll be supporting the full English breakfast and getting some great chess software. I don't know, I think it might be going somewhere actually. This is Gawain Jones, and you're listening to the full English breakfast with Lawrence Trent and Stephen Gordon. This is episode number 20 of the Full English Breakfast. I'm Macaulay Peterson. We've got European news, April Fools, a dress code debate, and with me, as always, International Master Lawrence Trent and Grandmaster Stephen Gordon. Talk to me. How's it going, guys? I was going to say good afternoon, but good evening or good morning. We're in different time zones, aren't we? Yes, this is unprecedented. Talking to you guys about 11 30, 11 o'clock at night or something. Yeah, yeah it's late.、Yeah. Bedtime. I need my hot chocolate already. And I've just had my first coffee of the Day down under. I'll catch you up on the tournament down here in Canberra, Australia, on our next show. But first, let's plunge right in with some pub talk. So, we had April Fools, which、um, I must say I was a bit lazy about. I apologize. I just、uh, kind of Did the, the cop out and said, Well, you give us your April Fool's joke. So we got a few responses, but my favorite dovetails nicely with、uh, what we're going to talk about later in the show in the European Championship in Plovdiv. Mark McCready says, How about FIDE to ban players arriving at the board early as well as late? <laughs> Do you know what? We're going to come on to that, aren't we? Because I'm going to go off on one in a big way about this. Well, my bit of pub talk is actually an April Fool's prank. That obviously had a lot more thought into it, and that was from Chess Base. These guys have way too much time on their hands when it comes around to April 1st. But they did pull a, a, a nice fast one over the audience this time, partly by、uh, cheating a bit and actually posting it on April 2nd. The argument being that it was still April 1st in、uh, you know, some random Pacific island just east of the international dateline or something like that. But be that as it may, They posted a, a, a very nice piece about a new bust to the King's Gambit. So remember, Bobby Fischer famously said he had a bust to the King's Gambit. But this was supposed to be a Ripka you know, super bust,、uh, completely analyzing out the King's Gambit. And they posted this very、uh, straight seeming、uh, and fooled a lot of people. Do you want to know something? It fooled me. I remember seeing that. I, in fairness, I was at work and I didn't look at it properly. <laughs> But I thought, tell me that, and just busted the king's gambit. Three bishop e2 is the only move that's a draw, and every other move loses by force. I mean, that's some preparation, isn't it, Lawrence? Well, I've, I've never played the king's gambit, and I never really had, had planned to, but I did once against Nigel Short, and I wish I hadn't. It was in a blitz game. I like playing against the king's gambit. I always have quite good results against the King's Gambit. But、uh, what about you? Well, you've never come and that's far too loose for you, Steve. Oh, I've never played it, yeah. I mean, I've played boring chess. I used to play it all the time growing up, well, actually. Did you? Oh, really? It was a lot of fun. 
So what did you think when you saw it, Macaulay? Were you um, were you taken aback a little bit? Well, the funny thing is I didn't actually read it on chess base because, you know, I don't read chess base. <laughs> <laughs> I, read it, I read it somewhere else and then saw their retraction, you know, their explanation, which was quite amusing. Well, there you go. I was fooled. I got, I got that hook, line and sing. I really thought Ribka had busted an opening. Because I think one day it's not out this world, is it, in general? That one day a Ribka of this world or... Houdini or whatever machine you want to... What, you reckon it'll bust something on the second move? Yeah, I reckon, for example, an Albin Counter Gambit might get busted. There may be an opening for black, maybe a dodgy opening for black. I can't really think of one at the moment, but... What, what about a Grunfeld defence? No, that won't get busted. That's too sound. That's far too sound, isn't <laughs> maybe. it? Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, something's going to get busted. But what does that mean, if these openings get busted? Does it mean suddenly you can't play them? Or... Does it mean that you just get a bad position? Can it mean any more than that? How can you conceivably look at everything? You can't. I mean, that was the point in the in the retraction that they're saying that even you know even the king's gambit, uh, there's basically no chance of it really being busted. You know, in the foreseeable future, we're talking centuries. You know, chess is just too rich. I mean, we all know that there are openings that exist that are borderline unsound, but that's all you can really say about these openings. You can't say, oh, it's solved to a result. I guess you can just say, who'd play the king's gambit if? Uh, if you can play the Queen's Gambit, Trent. Well, I reckon one night of six might be a good reply to avoid uh, playing the Queen's... I don't know. What, what do I know? I mean, uh, do I... you're asking... Ask... <laughs> you're asking the wrong guy. All right, well, moving on. We had one uh, small piece of news coming out, which uh, is a bit disappointing, and that is that Linares is definitively cancelled. Not going to happen in 2012, just as it didn't happen last year. Uh, they had kind of dangled uh, some hope in front of us for the last couple of months after it was announced that uh, there was plans to hold it in concert with a Mexican city. Uh, but uh, it turns out got too little too late, and so they've thrown in the towel maybe next year. A real shame, isn't it, Steve? Shame, because... really, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm having, uh, I've got withdrawal symptoms from not seeing a top tournament for a while. The fact that uh, March of next year was still still open. Apparently, FIDE was finally convinced, not long after we published our last show with our interview with Malcolm Payne, FIDE decided in their infinite wisdom to move the candidates tournament to next March, avoiding any possible conflict with uh, Bilbao in the fall and the London Classic. Uh, so both of those tournaments will go ahead and the FIDE candidates will go ahead next March. Knockwood. Sounds like a very sensible decision, doesn't it? I mean, I'm sure uh, I'm sure Malcolm will be very happy about that. Well, he was so happy he announced the dates of the London Classic. Oh, he's now announced the dates. Oh, fantastic. That is really good news. It's great news, really. It all sounds like they've taken a sensible decision, which is refreshing. Really refreshing. It's really odd, isn't it, for FIDE to do something with with any sort of logic and common sense behind it so um, well done well done I don't know maybe, maybe this uh, this guy coming on this Paulson guy is going to have maybe the omens are good I don't know well we had a big event going on in uh, Poftip Bulgaria and that is the European Individual Championship which is notable in part because uh, it provides a whole lot of qualifiers to the next World Cup which will be in Tromsø, Norway in August of 2013. So some surprises at the top 
I know uh, Anish Giri's performance was uh, pretty disappointing for his rating, but you know he's a young guy, and these kinds of swings are not uh, totally unexpected. And the unlikely winner turned out to be Dmitry Yakovenko. Well, not that unlikely, I guess. Just a few years ago, he was in the top 10, uh, pushing 27.60, I think, and seems to be headed back there. Well, yeah, it's ridiculous the strength and depth that they've got, isn't it? I mean... Just looking at this final ranking list, he's 27-29 at the moment, and he, he went through the tournament without really getting noticed until the last couple of rounds. Just going into the last day, how do you predict a winner when there's a load of players sat on 7.5, and, and then Fresenet's got 8? Yeah, well, I mean, I remember looking at it, we, was, we were at the Forencial. To be totally honest, the way Fresenet had been playing... He'd been playing absolutely brilliantly. For me, he didn't really have any real shaky games that I can think of off the top of my head. And I thought, well, Black against Yakovenko, okay, he can probably hold it and uh, come at least equal first. But, you know, Yakovenko, I mean, he's not uh, hes not the sort of name that, that is, is, is said too much, really, even though he's got this big rating. And I know in the Russian team, he's extremely well respected. He's only young, he's only about 27, 28. Well, it's not young by, uh, I suppose nowadays standards but he's still relatively young and um, he just hasn't managed to capture the the hearts of many you know yet but maybe if he pushes up the rating list and goes above 2750 suddenly he'll start getting invites to these super tournaments because I think that's what he's lacked we haven't really seen him in a Tower Memorial or a Bilbao or a London yet I mean what do you need though Lawrence what do you need to get an invite to a super tournament what is it that um, makes a player stand out from the rest at the top to get an invite so you know you've got your household names haven't you You Kramnik's going to get an invite Ivanchuk's going to get an invite people want to see Morozovic play and then you've got your young guys. How does a 27-year-old who's sort of been hovering around the the top 20 for a while, how does he break into that, those chess personalities that get invited? Well, you've got to put in a performance like he's just done to open some doors, and he's got to get his rating a bit higher, unfortunately. Because if you look at one of these close tournaments, even with the likes of Anish Giri, yes, Giri might have a slightly lower rating than him, but he's only 17. So these tournaments are looking for either household names, like you said. Uh, you've got your, your world number ones, world champions, ex-world champions, so on. Or they're looking for the real cream of the up-and-coming talent, such as uh, you know your Giris, uh, your Caruanas, or your Nakamuras. Uh, and then to break that, because remember, you might have a, rate, a current rating of 27.20, but actually that only puts him probably about 20th in the world on the live rating list or 22nd. There are just a whole, there's, I mean, there are a whole bunch of guys with that rating. So you've got to do something a bit special. It's a shame, isn't it? It's a shame that it's described as like only 20 in the world. Yeah. Because like, you don't stand out then, do you? No. I mean... <laughs> I mean, look at this as well. You see, I'm looking at this final ranking list. Five of the top six are Russians, and there'll be names that the average chess player won't have heard of, like Malakov, Andrei Akin, Inarkiev, Matlakov. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of players who won't have heard of Matlakov. I know he's a fantastic player, 
But at twenty six thirty two, you know he's not he's not getting a look in. These are the top finishers. Yeah, I think that's the uh, the real problem for uh, for these guys from Russia. I mean, Yakovenko would be number one from almost any country you could name. Yeah. And yet, uh, yeah, looking looking at him uh, in the context of the Russian squad, he's uh, you know currently sitting at number five. He doesn't even make you know Olympiad team, does he? He'll go there as a reserve. I mean, it's just craziness. 22 of the players tied for 15th place with 7.5 points. Of those 22, 9 of them qualified. Wow, that's how strong it is. But um, Yakovenko clearly qualified for the World Cup. And so is our very own Gawain Jones, who did the intro for the show. So well done, Gawain. For an absolutely incredible tournament. What an awesome performance. Brilliant. Just... uh... Very mature as well. To get to four out of four, I mean, that's good in itself, but I think the most impressive thing is not to let the wheels come off when, you, when you're when you at the top on your own. And he's just playing lovely chess all the way through. I thought it was awesome. I mean, his tie break was good as well. It put him into 15th position. Best of the ones on seven and a half. It's looking good for England. I mean, what a strong team we're going to be sending to an Olympiad this year. With Gawain playing like he is... Um, even David Howell had a very good finish in the tournament. So, you know, David's still well capable. You know, we've got a bit of youth with a bit of experience. Mickey's playing fantastically as well at the moment. And, and Nigel's had a bit of a return to form in Gibraltar. So, you know, we, we're all on paper, we, we should be doing quite well. But um, the great thing about this tournament is not only was there such a strength and depth of 26 to 2700 players, but there were also some really interesting games and and Gawain arguably played some of the most interesting ones um especially his game with White against Velocatin where he was you know he, he was just just seemingly a piece out I mean to the naked eye Steve he's just all piece down against the 2700 Ukrainian yeah but he managed to draw it he, he fought and he's tricky isn't he? he's a tricky player you know, that's the way these things go, isn't it? I mean, when it, when the pressure's on, you've got to try and change gears and have a go at these guys. And Gawain was doing that well, you know. He was fighting for wins all the time. McCauley, I mean, the, for me, apart from the great chess, this tournament was filled with controversy. There were a number of big incidents, weren't there? And uh, the biggest shame, if I can be honest, for me, is the eventual withdrawal of Mamajarov. Yeah, well, let's, let's break this down. So there are three issues that came up, and these are part of the new... Uh, European Chess Union rules. We've got the dress code issue, then we've got the zero tolerance rule, which I guess was a really a FIDE rule, and then there's the no draws before move 40, uh, including repetitions which have to go through the arbiter. Yeah. So all of those enforce in Pluftiv, specifically the, the zero tolerance rule, we've seen that come up before, uh, but there were a number of players who were forfeited in this tournament, probably more than, than in other events that have used the zero tolerance rule, uh, including uh, one that was just kind of bad luck and probably would have been forfeited anyway was the daylight savings. Like six players didn't show up uh, when the clocks changed. Yeah. Um, but that, that, of course, wasn't to do with the zero tolerance rule. They would have missed it uh, <laughs> anyway. But uh, certainly they've got to make sure that the players are aware since uh, daylight savings changes are not uniform across the globe. There are differences from country to country. So, you know, the organizers really have to make sure that the players know what time the round starts. What do you think of that, Steve? Because when I, I looked at it, I was appalled when I found out because there was one instance. What was it? it was I think it was six Georgians who I assume were all staying in the same flat or at least, uh, you know, were, were together in some way. And... Um, 
Yeah, we had this this kid, uh, Shota Azaladze, I think his name was, who's an IM and at the early stage, literally having the tournament of his life. You know, really on for GM norms, and, and yeah, if he continued playing like he did, great things. And he's missed a game through daylight savings. Now I'm sure the organisers did say, you know beware of daylight savings but there are a lot of languages at the, the event there's a lot of people they might not have been there for whatever reason i think the organizers should be doing a bit more to try and get them to the game i mean it does just feel as though it's it's become so uh, militant yeah it's militant isn't it you know you're not sat in your chair when the clock strikes two o'clock or whatever then you lose your game. I mean, who are these prats who bring in these well, rules? Exactly. I mean, it's just absolute nonsense, isn't it? I mean, yes, at top-level tournaments, yeah, the photographers want to see you and the important people that turn up. But, you know, it's like if you're on board 59 of a European Championship and, you know, you you make a mistake with a time or, you know, anything could happen. You could have an accident on the way to the play and all. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute and I'll probably do this on the dress code too. But just for fun, if you look at other sports though, it doesn't matter if you're playing in Wimbledon, it doesn't matter if you're playing on, you know, on, on the outer court or whatever and, you know, there's 100 people watching you or whatever, you still are expected to show up at the start of the round. I mean, you're there early. You've got to warm up and uh, and by, by the time that the, the game gets underway, I mean, you don't see people who are just like coming out of the locker room, you know, stumbling out of with their third coffee or whatever to show up on the court. Why can't it be the same for chess? I'll tell you what, McCauley, if I was getting paid to play chess as much as they're getting paid to turn up at Wimbledon, I would get there a few hours early and, you know, sign every autograph I got asked for. Okay, so that's the difference. You're saying that chess is not a professional sport for those guys, so so therefore you you, you can't expect to, to have the regulations be like they would be for a truly professional sport. Well, look, I mean, these players have got to sit down for, you know, could be seven hours of the day fighting and we've got to do it for two weeks well I could say the same thing about tennis the guys have to go and slog it out for five sets uh, for two okay, weeks okay but and... tennis is a little different isn't it I mean it's not on a timer I mean if Mama Jarov wants to turn up half an hour late or you know any other name if he wants to turn up half an hour late fine you know he's he's half an hour down Uh so that's penalty enough you're saying you're not dropping points when you show up late for a tennis game so therefore you have to be on time but since you're losing time on the clock in the chess game that's penalty enough well exactly i mean that's all that's the whole point we got we got time controls you can lose the game on time you can't lose a tennis game on time if you um, if you get an injury during a tennis game, you can call the doctor down and spend ten fifteen minutes getting treated. Uh, in chess, you can't do that. And uh, plus, I think the other big thing is with the tennis. There's so much. I think Stevens, you know, said something quite important. There's so much sponsorship around. There's there's so much television coverage or radio coverage, and things like in play betting and marketing where you know all of these other features uh, because it's it's so integrated into what what the sport is that it it does make a big difference the problem is it, going back to board 59 of the european championships it's not going to make one bit of difference whether he turns up on time or late i totally agree with what steven said if it's for a major closed tournament a superstar tournament grand slam tournament 
where you know there are the video cameras and there are six players only to deal with fine but you've got to apply some common sense and also there are legitimate reasons why people don't turn up not just accidents and so on but there is there could be something absolutely legitimate and there are millions of examples of this of why you can't sit down at two o'clock. Like what? I mean, what are you talking about? Well, I mean, it could be anything. I mean, for all you know, you could trip up on the way to the bloody playing hall. Well, okay, but I mean, you could trip up in any sport. I mean, what? What's? What's? Uh, well, let's just what, say. All right, let's just get. Say you get a phone call um, ten minutes before the round from a family member saying somebody's passed away. What do you think happens in in tennis or in any other sport? Well, that I mean, happens? I think that I think certain things are. Done. I mean, I think certain things are put in place. Darts, which has now become a major television-based sport in England, one of the players found out that he had a family bereavement and actually he ended up playing the game he was supposed to play the week after on the same night. So they did accommodate him. They wouldn't have done that with chess. They would have just forfeited him and said, oh, well, sorry about that. Sorry to hear the bad news. Or, well, I, you know. I don't know. I mean, if there was a bereavement, I'm not sure that you couldn't get uh, a delay or get a postponement of a game in chess. I mean, that that's not... I mean, I don't think that that is in the rules. I don't think there's any there's any given that they would definitely forfeit you. But I take your point. And, and about the board 59, I mean, that seems to me more like a difference of degree. I mean, you're saying that, uh, well, nobody really cares about what's going on on board 59, but... The game might be a webcast live. There might be people who are watching it. There might be people who are providing commentary on a game if it's key for a certain national market or whatever. I mean, there's lots of reasons why you might think that even the board 59 should start on time. If it's a question of money, okay, well then where, so where do you draw the line? Board 10, board 20? Because those guys, you know, might might actually be uh, making decent money, so they should be expected to be on time, yeah. but the other guys but not. There, I mean, but there's another, how there, does that there's work? another difference in a dynamic of a chess game. You know, in a football game or a tennis game, it, it it's important to start on time because how the game is, is shaped so early on. For example, a guy can think on his first move or first three moves or first four moves for 20, 30 minutes. It doesn't really have any immediate such a strong effect straight away. Whereas if a guy goes three, four games up, immediately... The game is so far in his favour within those 30 minutes that it affects it on uh, straight away. Um, so I think that's another thing that we have to consider. It just doesn't make a difference whether you turn up one minute late for a game in a game of chess. People aren't expecting fireworks to happen within 30 seconds. In a football match, as soon as you kick that ball and it's a kickoff, you can score within a minute. And it changes the... It doesn't happen like that, especially in a tournament like this with so many great players. Don't get me wrong, they'll be short games, but they won't be decided in 10, 15 minutes. They'll be decided in an hour tops, you know, an hour and a half. So there's a different dynamic to just how chess is played out. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to the other uh, big controversy in the European Championship, yeah. and that was the uh, draw forfeits. A couple of games ending before move 40, unless you went to seek permission of the arbiter for, in the case of a repetition, uh, you could get a double zero for that. And they were enforcing that pretty harshly, uh, so much so that, uh, well, one of the more amusing points, which might have been an April Fool's joke, except that it was before April 1st, was in the game uh, between Sebastian Mazet and Ilya Spirnin. They actually repeated the moves from move 16 to 40, <laughs> which uh, blows any previous record that I've ever seen of a move repetition uh, clear out of the world. Yeah, I mean, what do you think of this, Steve? Because, you know, I saw this game and I just thought... They're obviously having a laugh at the organisers because it's such a, 
you know, you have to ask permission to get a draw, even with, you know, what was it, a, a three three move repetition? You can't even call it a draw, right? Well, I just think that if you're going to set a rule like that, then there are going to be people in a tournament of that size, and if they if they want a draw against each other and they find themselves in an equal position or whatever, they're going to make a mockery of the rule, aren't they? I mean, in some ways, the games that ended after 19 moves are, you know, a bit just a bit more sensible than getting to move 16 and then repeating over and over and uh, just making it all look a bit Mickey Mouse. One of the problems is that uh, the uniformity of the rules, I mean, it seems like you have to, to walk a fine line between having the rules apply the same to everyone and also maybe giving the arbiters a certain amount of discretion. There were cases where a game ended before move 40 and the players were not double forfeited and other oh, cases where really? the, they agreed to a draw before move 40 and were double forfeited, treating different players differently, that's obviously a problem. But, okay, so we've got these, these two examples, the zero tolerance rule and the, uh, the double forfeit if agreed draw before move 40. And Mohamed Yarov <laughs> just unfortunately got hit up by both of them and uh, decided to actually leave the tournament after that. So the first one, okay, the zero tolerance rule is not the first one to, uh, to be forfeited for uh, being late to the board. But uh, it is pretty rare for a double forfeit in the case of an agreed draw to, uh, to have happened since that rule started being used. In the Bundesliga, you can't offer your opponent a draw before move 20. And I believe if, if you offer it and they accept, then you both get double zero. Surely the sensible thing to do is give them a warning. It just doesn't help. It doesn't help. And in fact, it, it, you know, it's going to drive players away from the tournament. Yeah. You know, Mama Jarov, yeah. look at the experience he's had. You know, he's a 27.50. They want him. They want him in the tournament. They want somebody of his calibre in the tournament. I remember reading on the day he said he was a bit late, he said he was 10 seconds late to the board. And this is where common sense comes in. If it's 10 seconds or where it's a minute, it doesn't matter. He could be sitting down thinking for a minute for his first move. What difference does it make? In the live transmission on the internet, what difference does it make? So you think it should be five minutes? Or no, ten I think minutes, it should then. just be what it is. It should be an hour. It should just be an hour. But then a player is allowed to come, a top player is allowed to come to the board after the time when they're no longer allowed to be photographs or video taken? But if you're saying that, Macaulay, then you're saying that the, the limit should be five minutes. Well, I think five minutes would be more sensible than an hour. Maybe, maybe. There's an argument for that. I think five minutes is really short as well. Maybe ten minutes is sort of the realm we should be going to. Okay, well, I want to hear from our Facebook fans. What would be a common sense rule to encourage players to be on time for the board? What would be a common sense rule to enforce an anti-draw or a um, no agreed draws, no draws before move 40 that uh, isn't uh, capricious but still uh, helps drive the sport forward? In a way, these kinds of scandals in Polovtiv completely overshadowed any uh, possible problems or discussion about the new dress code policy. The ECU uh, wants to try to enforce a, a dress code policy so that uh, players are looking presentable, part of the, of the drive towards commercialization of chess or professionalization of the sport. I guess you're not a fan. I just think, who designed these I mean who actually said yes these are acceptable and no these aren't I, I think there should be what you shouldn't wear rather than what you should have to wear what are we achieving I mean really what are we achieving with this are we achieving we're not 
we're not achieving anything. We're really not. Well, no, I mean, I think certain top-level events, if, you know, players are, are coming too casual, jeans and a T-shirt kind of thing, that can affect the image of the of the tournament. Having a dress code is not an unreasonable request. It's a different thing, isn't it? Super tournaments and this European Championship. We're talking about controlling hundreds of players as opposed to sending an email to six guys saying, can you turn up in shirts and ties on these days? And make sure that you've got a jacket with you. So it's about the size of the tournament that matters. Not the size, necessarily. It's the prestige of the tournament. You're saying the European Championship's not prestigious enough to have a dress code? Well, actually, if it was prestigious enough, it would have, you know, TV cameras left, right and centre. We, we see every board live. The lack of TV cameras is not about the prestige. I mean, there are all kinds of, of reasons for that. And, and we're, you know, we're t- we are talking about something that is at least aimed at trying to professionalise the sport. So you, you, it's sort of a chicken and the egg problem, isn't it? No, it's not, because you have to remember the context as well in which these tournaments are played. Yes, it's the European Championships. Of course, it's got huge prestige. Nobody's denying that. But it's not in front of all the cameras, every board. If, for example, a prize giving, I am all for there being a dress code for the prize giving. I think people should be smart because that is clearly a point in the tournament where the press is going to be heavily involved and so on and so forth. Well, at least in this case, the tournament officials have some leeway. They uh, first give a verbal warning, and then if that doesn't work, they can uh, receive a second warning in writing. At least that's a start. Okay, well, we should probably leave it there. Next time on the Full English Breakfast, I'll uh, catch you up on the Australian chess scene from the Dobro Cup. We've got the last weekend of the Bundesliga coming up. The last weekend of the Forenzial as well, not so long away. And also the Russian team championship. So keep up on the program at our website, thefeb.com, where you'll also find a link to the new Chess King software, which you can get at a discount for a limited time. $99 for Chess King Pro and $49 for Chess King if you use the coupon code BREAKFAST. So check that out. This was a bit of a ranty episode. Let's get some good feedback from from our listeners and maybe we can continue this discussion. And who knows, we might even be able to give some really good input into these sorts of channels. Yeah, maybe they'll let the Full English Breakfast uh, into a ECU organization planning meeting. Only if you were in a nice shirt, of course. The sexier they look, the better. The shorter the skirts, the better. Not because I'm a perv, 